Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from both academia and industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics uh, Podcast. Hello, Professor Taylor. Thanks so much uh, for joining us in the podcast. Yeah, I would like to ask you how you would like to define yourself for the audience that may be first time listening to you. Probably define myself as a research engineer. Uh, um, what I'm most interested in doing is solving problems in the world. I, I view robotics as uh, coupling information to action in the physical world. Mm-hmm. And um, if you if you look at that, to do useful things, and a lot of what I do involves really a three-way partnership between people and technology, the robots and the imagers and all, and information to change processes. Mm-hmm. There are things that we don't know how to do in order to implement a system that does something. And so that's the research. But generally for me, it's research related in some way or another to a practical need. It might be still curiosity driven. I wonder if I could get a machine to do something, Mm -hmm. but generally it's, gee, if I could get a machine to do something, then I think I could use it for this, that, or the other thing. So I think you, you really brought interesting uh, point about how science should look like. Do you think now, um, comparison maybe when you start working in 1980s, for example, there is a difference between the objective or maybe the motivation. Is it about curiosity or it's more about securing funding and publication? Because we ask all the time if we have rescue idea, sometimes it just, yeah, you can't get funding and you can't secure publication out, out of these rescue ideas. So how do you see maybe, I don't know, battle between risky idea and incremental um, ideas, for example. Okay, well, that's actually very interesting. Uh, well, first you mentioned curiosity, and again, curiosity versus demand-pull. And, and, and I, 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 as I mentioned, that really is sort of an interaction. Uh, in academia, well, actually in the world, it's not enough simply to have a really interesting idea. Uh, You also need to find the resources somewhere to pursue that idea. Mm. And uh, that that actually is a challenge in industry too, uh, although perhaps in a little different way. In industry, you usually need to tie what you want to do a little more strongly to potential product or profit for your company but uh, in academia, I, I, I think it's also true. Um, during, well, I had 19 years at IBM Research and then over 20 years, uh, actually going on 25 years here at, at Johns Hopkins, uh, there's similarities. Um, I, I do think that academic careers, uh, especially junior faculty, are have to be very concerned about uh, uh, establishing a track record that will get them promoted and get them tenure. And uh, in my my experience, 
the people who are very successful academics don't let that drive them uh, because if you try to punch tickets simply, you, you will only do derivative research. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I wish I had a better answer. Uh, I generally advise mm -hmm. junior faculty here uh, to understand what it is you want to do, and then let's see if we can figure out a way to get the funds or the resources to do it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, sometimes it's successful, sometimes it's not. I mean, even senior faculty, uh, when we write grant reviews, we'll get reviews back. And sometimes, sometimes they say, yes, this is great. Um, we think this should be funded and everyone goes out and celebrates. Sometimes they, you have criticisms uh, and you either look at those and say, yeah, I, that's right. I, here's how I'll fix it. Or, boy, that person just didn't understand what I was trying to say. And that's things that are hardest because very often it has been the case that you just haven't explained clearly enough what, what it is you want to do and why it's important. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes simply the reviewer is just flat out wrong. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's life. Yeah. So I guess this gives us in, in ages you have been working at IBM, uh, so in surgical robotics. So if you can tell us about what could be the most important question still not answered yet in terms of surgical robotics. Oh. The most important questions. The most important question. Yeah. I'm not sure that you can say there is the most important question. I think one is one of the most important questions in surgical robotics is probably how how can the computer maintain a situational awareness in a procedure and safely assess the surgeon in doing the procedure. Mm -hmm. There's also a great deal of interest out there now in aspects of autonomy, uh, the machine doing more and more to help you. And uh, we often see rather complicated uh, tiers of autonomy. In fact, I've been co-author on guest editorials and so forth to talk about that. But I think in the end, it really boils down to two questions. Mm -hmm. How can you tell the machine what the machine is supposed to do in a way that the machine can understand it? And then how can you be sure the machine will do what you want it to do and not something else? And I think if you look at all of these tiers of autonomy uh, that you see published, in the end, they really come down to those two questions in various levels. Uh, the way I see this evolving personally is uh, fairly incrementally, at least in surgery, where uh, the computers are, are, are already able to do the robots to do certain tasks more or less under computer control. In fact, teleoperation secretly has a lot of computer control in it already. 
And um, so I think the question really then boils down to how do you, how do you specify more complicated tasks, and how can the computer get the information to maintain the situational awareness, the, the model of the patient and the state and so forth, to do the control to help the surgeon? And can you do all of that in a way the surgeon can trust it? Mm -hmm. um, the first surgical robot to do really dramatic surgery was the system that I developed with Peter Kazidis when we were at IBM Research, at least the prototype that was then commercialized uh, by a company that was called Integrated Surgical Systems and is now called Think Robotics for doing hip replacement surgery where the specification of the task was simply to uh, say, here is where you need to make the hole in a bone uh, uh, to place an orthopedic implant. And that could be done from CT images, whether, whether say for knee surgery or hip surgery, very, very clearly. And then what you had to do in the operating room was simply fix the knee and find the bone accurately enough so the robot could could machine the shape accurately. And so that usually is considered autonomous. Uh, when you get to much more interactive surgery, uh, such as these da Vinci systems for minimally invasive surgery, um, things get much more complicated uh, in terms of the task. And we're still primarily relying on the surgeon's situational awareness and uh, the, the, what the robot is supposed to do is determined by motion of control handles. Um, that is beginning to evolve, uh, especially where you have robots with three or four hands and maybe one of them can help with things like retraction. And on a research basis, people are very interested in doing things like automating suturing. But I really see this as, a, yeah. as an evolution. And to get each step in the evolution, I think the machine has to do something better than a human. There has to be a real advantage. It could be time-saving. It could be safety. It could be greater accuracy. It's got to be something. That's a long answer. I apologize. No, it's an excellent answer. But I, I guess if we can break it down to the situational awareness, for example, do you think it may be challenging in terms of sensing, for example, how we design reliable sensor? Where do you imagine could be that could be solved it to make it a situational awareness tool? Okay, um, I think sensing is part of it. Mm. Um, vision sensing and the whole processing of of information coming from vision sensors is clearly a key part. Uh, sensing of direct sensing of tool to tissue forces and other information that humans just don't have access to, uh, um, radiological sensing and so forth. That's part of it. But I think maybe the more crucial part is uh, the, the fusion of information so that you have all of this sensor information and we already have a lot of it. How do I combine all of that information to make some kind of a computer representation of what's going on in the patient and the task that the computer can then use in real time to help the surgeon? 
And so I think, personally, I think that's the key issue. Uh, now, how you help the surgeon, it could be by generating some display, some augmented reality overlay. It could be helping with the control of the robot. But I, I, I think in the end, the situational awareness that the computer has should complement, as we said, that of the surgeon. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. May I ask you what could be still maybe so challenging in terms of when it comes to surgical robotics beyond situational awareness? What could be also challenging uh, aspects you still facing um, when designing these surgical robots? Okay, again, we're focusing on surgical robots. I should just mention, I think there are other areas, even in medical robotics, that are also very important. But mm -hmm. within surgical robotics, I think reliability, certifiability, and patient safety obviously have to be paramount. And um, so so I, I think... the some of this is a process is you you if you're going to develop a surgical robot that's going to be used on a person you really need to go through a very very rigorous process so that you can be sure that that those two questions that i raised are answered very strongly uh, that you can guarantee patient safety mm -hmm. There are other issues, again, having to do with just putting a robot in the operating room, sterility, materials, and things like that. Surgical robots, fundamentally, you, you're dealing with safety issues, and there is a very strong systems engineering challenge uh, that you would have with any safety critical system that is an additional challenge to the kind of technological challenges of modeling and device development and, and uh, sensing and all of these other things. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. But maybe we can just ask about the safety aspect when okay. it comes to designing the operator, the tool. How do you think about integrations of robotic and that we see that origami structure sometimes could be used um, for example. So how do you see the mechanical intelligence when it comes to the surgical tools we use in operation? How do you see the safety aspect there? What do you think about of, of using soft tools as compared to... I think the issues are the same. Um, you, I, I think you have to look very much at specifics. It's very, very, very difficult to uh, make a, um, a general assertion. If I'm using some sort of inflatable or soft robot grasper uh, for tissue retraction, maybe maybe that will be gentler on tissue I'm trying to retract. On the other hand, it's also got to be able to be firm enough to uh, pull the tissue out of the way. Uh, I, so I, I, I think it, it's very difficult to make a general conclusion. I do think that that some of these soft actuators, soft soft systems, are very exciting and very interesting, and uh, do have a lot of possibilities. Uh, I, I I don't think they're a panacea. Uh, I think they're one more tool in a toolkit, just like 
continuum robots or a tool in the toolkit that can be used in these kinds of procedures. So um, I'm curious to ask you about uh, the cochlear implant surgery because we know sometimes you can't use, like for example, MR technique, MRI techniques in that case during the surgery. And there's maybe strides now to use AIV since a couple of years ago, and still we don't have, yeah, I don't know how to see the progress of using uh, active material as actuator and the sensor to place this correct, uh, the, these electrodes correctly, since sometimes the surgeon doesn't have the sense to know whether they place these electrodes correctly or not in human cochlea. Well, well, it's again really hard to generalize without looking at a specific system, a specific paper. Uh, as a general proposition, I, I think active materials in, in microsurgical applications uh, are, are a, a very exciting possibility, uh, um, both because there is a possibility of combining actuation with sensing in interesting ways, mm. and uh, because you, you often can have an advantage in having things in very small scales. Uh, it is still very important, I think, to look at the control bandwidth that you, you can get with these systems, because that can also be important. And again, there is all, finally, there is a trade-off which can be exploited between natural compliance and, and, and active compliance. And uh, generally, if, if a natural compliance lets you do things, that makes the rest of the system simpler. But not always if it gets in the way of some precision of control that you might need for something else. I, I, I'm sorry, that sounds like a bit of um, an evasive answer. I don't mean it to be that way, but I'm not sure that you can really make a definitive statement, uh, except perhaps in looking at a very specific example. And I'm not sure that that's more of the kind of thing we do when we're reviewing papers. I agree with you, yeah. So maybe a question about what could be still unavoidable trade-off for designing when you design the, the surgical robot, for example, or, or the tools, for example. What could be unavoidable trade-off? Something you have to give up from. Ooh. You can't have your cake and eat it. Okay. I think uh, one, one trade-off is strength versus size versus scale. That, that is clearly an important trade-off. Another is bandwidth versus uh, all of these things and, and sensitivity. Um, it is still, I think, one of the most exciting areas of advances are we're able to fabricate smaller and smaller sensors and integrate them into smaller and smaller structures, whether active or passive. But there's still a trade-off. I mean, they're... they're we're, we're not quite always at the point of fighting physics, but we're sometimes getting very close to that. So you're going to have trade-offs. Um, I might want, say, very, very delicate tweezers that are able to sense forces I'm exerting at the sub-millinewton range, but I still might want to be able to exert tens of newtons of force with those for some reason. Well, I'm exaggerating, but... But uh, 
there, there's still, there's only so much you can do within the limits of technology. I think there are also, as a practical matter, cost limits that we also, certainly academics, we have limited budgets, but using these systems, uh, deploying them uh, for clinical care, you do have to worry about the cost of, of the systems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So maybe also, maybe um, I'm curious to ask you, have you ever designed something in modeling, for example? Because mentioned modeling is so challenging in computation and also as a tool. Um, and when you deployed in a in real experiment, it was really counterintuitive. It was surprising result. You didn't expect that when you try to model or think about the expected result. Have you ever had something like that, unexpected? Oh, sure, of course. I, I mean, I can give you a, a simple example now. Uh, we're, we are working on force-sensing tweezers, among other things. Uh, and uh, we have a, we made a, a, an initial design that the finite element analysis looked like it would work really well. Uh, but when we when we um, then fabricated it uh, and uh, the the first set of experiments um, showed a a great deal of crosstalk between the forces we were wanting to measure and those that we were not measuring. And that now has forced us to go back and reconsider our design concept. So that's that's a simple example. Um, I, I think by the time you get to um, kind of a complete system, I, 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 things often do go more or less the way you expected. Uh, certainly uh, the, the Robodoc, that first hip replacement system we did a lot of work initially getting the system to work right and both in modeling and programming and then the doing and and it did what it was designed to do i, I mean always when you deploy a system in practice uh there there are lots of things that you only that you forgot about that you find out about uh, uh practicalities of this, that, or the other thing. And so over time, uh, more this was more done in the company that commercialized uh, that system. Mm -hmm. Their design evolved as they got more experience and they were able to operate faster and they found out different ways of holding a bone and finding the bone and things like that. So, but that's sort of normal. Um, uh, where uh, it, it's a normal part of engineering development. Uh, yeah. I, I, um, one of the other projects, non-surgical projects that we're working on right now is uh, a robotic system to uh, extract salivary glands from mosquitoes. Uh, this is, uh, we're working in partnership with a um, company uh, in Rockville, Maryland that has a clinically effective uh, uh, malaria vaccine. But our, our, our goal is to help them increase the production rate and consistency of production of getting the mosquito, the salivary glands out of the mosquitoes. Um, and uh, it's a very sophisticated system we're developing that has uh, computer vision, uh, robots, uh, standard automation equipment. And these mosquitoes are really tricky to work with. And so uh, 
just as in any system, you you we put it together. We we get good experience. Uh, you see things that aren't quite what you expected to see, and I, I can't I can't get into the details right now because of patent reasons. But you see things that 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 you weren't expecting to see, and then you scratch your head a little bit and you you modify your design or you you tweak a parameter, and, and uh, that's just normal in any engineering development. I don't think surgical robots are any different. Mm -hmm. It does take, I, I think sometimes the students get a little bit disappointed in, in that things don't work perfectly the first time out of the box, but that's again, part of learning. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a question here later about when you um, have this reproducible performance or reliability in the robots as well. So why it's so challenging to transform robots from lab to commercial application? We had this experience. Why it's so challenging when we try to transform what we do in the lab to real-world application? Because we want to make sure it's reproducible or reliable. So why it's so challenging, basically? Why is it challenging? Yeah. Well, let's talk about what makes it challenging and then talk about why those things are there. Uh, one of the things that that makes things challenging is usually when you're going to deploy a commercial system, you worry more about cost than you do in a prototype. And uh, you, you worry much more about manufacturing processes, among other things, uh, and also materials and so forth. A second issue is usually customers expect thing that you that they bought to continue to work for a while and be very reliable and uh, reliability uh, if, if your your focus is on getting something to see if it'll work at all uh, is often a secondary consideration uh, it helps if when you're thinking about it you at least think about how eventually it would be reliable um, I think for surgical things, um, the development process as well, um, there's a lot more testing required. Uh, and also your design process needs to be documented much better. So I think from a, you know, we talk bench to bedside mat, uh, time, a lot of what you're doing at the beginning is you're trying to see, can you make something work at all? Can, in a way that at least potentially you think it has an advantage and then you have to, to prove it. Now for medical products especially, there is very stringent regu regulation over the entire development process. And uh, a great deal more testing is expected uh, and, and documentation than most graduate students are used to be. Uh, at our lab, um, occasionally we've, we've, we've tried to incorporate more of that kind of work into all of our systems development, but it's still a different order of magnitude than what you see in medical device development. Uh, but but I it being aware of, of some of those things can help you shorten the process. But there really is a trade-off between 
quickly understanding what the problem is and understanding whether uh, your engineering idea will address that problem and addressing these other things. Yeah, I, I like this part because when you figure out what could be the real problem and what kind of problems you create and you try to solve. If a student asks you how you can figure out the most important problems, maybe in a way, because sometimes we do mistakes sometimes. So what could be the hint you can figure out this is the most important problem or maybe the problem you have to create or you have to figure out and find a solution for it? Ah, well, usually what, what we do, and again, I'm talking surgical systems um, or, or is talk to the people who have the problems. Uh, work closely with physicians who will usually tell you what their problems are, but then you have to continually stay in contact. Um, one of the biggest mistakes that I think some medical robotics people, and I, I fear some companies occasionally make, is they'll interview a few surgeons, say, hot dog, here's our problem, go off and come back a year or two later and say, here's our answer. And the surgeon would look at it and say, yeah, but no, that's not what my real problem is. So I, I think the best thing to do is, is make it a continual process. Generally, our, our, our research here at Johns Hopkins uh, is there are weekly or at least every other week meetings with our clinical end users uh, as just part of the routine thing we do. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the tricks, I think, is to find uh, a way of engaging your user community and keeping them engaged while you're solving some of these engineering problems. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's probably the, the easiest answer I, I can make. I, I do think that it's also very, very important uh, to answer, they're, they're often referred to as the Heilmeier questions, although uh, at IBM Research, our director of research had a slightly similar version, but first question, what do you want to do? Second question is, why do you want to do that? What, what, if, if you are, and a, a third question is, how will you measure success? How will you know when you've succeeded? So, you know, what do you want to do? Why is what you want to do solving some real problem in the world or potentially enabling a real problem to be solved? And then how are you going to measure success? And so we, we, I think in all of our discussions with our graduate students, with ourselves, we do try to keep those questions in mind from the beginning and, and, and always uh, there. Uh, so that's sort of general engineering advice. It certainly doesn't only apply to surgical robots or medical robots or, or robots in general. I think that's So we are closing to the end then we have a few questions. The first one about redundancy. We highlight about the safety concern about the tool. How do you make sure the surgical tool is redundant during operation if a failure happened, for example, in Ireland, that to make sure safety for the patient? How do we make sure that, That's, well, that's a very, very good question. And anything we want to 
use in a clinical trial. We have to worry about that. Um, there is a, a standard process uh, called FMEA, Failure Modes and Effects Analysis, that anything that we think is heading toward a clinical study, uh, we'll, we'll try to do that ourselves. And obviously, any company commercializing what we do does it even more, where you actually say, well, what could fail in this system? How likely is it that it could fail? How likely is it that we would know that it fails? And what, what would the effect of the failure be? And what would we do about it? And one of, I think there, one of the uses of redundancy is it helps you answer most of those questions. If I, I have a feedback encoder on a robot joint and that fails, the joint could go out of control. Mm -hmm. So what the standard answer is, well, I need two ways of measuring this motion. And if they don't agree, then I know something is wrong and I need to correct. Usually in, in surgical robots, that's done by having two encoders. There are other ways of doing it. One would be a standard feedback encoder and some way of directly measuring, uh, say, the tool to tissue relationship. But but I, I, I think I, I think that's what we have to do. And redundancy is absolutely crucial. Um, and uh, again, I'll go back to that very first surgical robot uh, that we developed. I actually, um, what for the experimental prototype, what we did is we, we had a conventional robot that didn't have in it, for the prototype, uh, have, uh, it had one set of encoders. So I used an optical tracking system that was accurate to a tenth of a millimeter to watch what the end effector did. And those had to agree. And I also knew where the tool, there was some region that tool was allowed to be in. And if it got out of that region, uh, the, the optical tracker would, would say, whoa, stop, uh, freeze the robot because you're not doing the right thing. And um, there were two things interesting there. Uh, it, the company, for the product really went to multiple encoders in the arm, which is a, maybe a better engineering solution. But the other thing is that extra redundancy was enormously helpful uh, in debugging the systems, identifying other things that we didn't expect beyond just simply as the robot in control. So, it actually helps you to build more redundancy into the system than you even need for the FMEA because yeah. it helps you troubleshoot. Uh, for the for the um, the mosquito dissection example, uh, we've actually got multiple video cameras all over the system. I don't know if we're gonna if you use them all in a production system, but they sure do help us figure out how to debug the system. So good, in, mostly I'm talking about good engineering rather than medical robots, but good engineering among other things means that you should pay a lot of attention to how do you instrument a system while you're building it so that you can understand the things that, that your modeling predicted but isn't quite what reality is. That's wonderful. 
thank you. I think that's also an instruction for Siri as well to to consider what you say. So thank you for saying that. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. What is your maybe favorite robot in this journey? The favorite robot you build? Oh lordy, it's usually the one I'm working on now. Huh? Uh, probably the the robots that I'm most interested in. I, I I really like them all, so it's a little unfair question. It's like asking who's your favorite child. But yeah. a lot of the robots that I've been interested in for many 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 years have been uh, hand over hand systems where the robot and the surgeon both hold the surgical tool. If I pull on the tool, the robot feels that and just follows my hand. But by golly, it's a robot. It doesn't have hand tremor. And if you're working in microsurgery, that's very, very important. Because especially if I have a long tool, a little bit of hand tremor makes the end uh, move in ways that I can't do the microsurgery I want to do. But also because it's robot, it can do things like enforce safety barriers. It can take over and say using some other sensor, do some local thing on its own. Uh, one example is if I want to say, insert a needle into a blood vessel without going out the other side, mm -hmm. I can sense when I've gotten into the vessel and just stop. If I am machining bone in the skull base, uh, there are two nerves. There's the uh, facial nerve and a nerve called the cord of tympani. And I have to get to the cochlea, I have to make a, a space right in here. And by the way, if I damage either of those, it's really terrible. I only got a millimeter or so. Uh, so, if, but if the robot knows where those delicate structures are, it can just stop me from driving into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, and then you look at RoboDoc, once the robot knew what it had to do, it could machine the hole much more accurately uh, than a human did. In fact, in that case, we hand guided the robot to get it a bottom position. We then did a registration, and then the robot did the rest of it autonomously. Uh, in that case, the safety critical aspect, aside from the robot not going crazy, really is the registration. It, have you does the robot know where to make the hole? And and the, the biggest risk there was you get the registration wrong. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I, I, again, there's this kind of trade-off in partnership, just like if you have a partner doing carpentry or something. Some cases one, one will help, you'll do some hand guiding and studying. In other cases, maybe the system or the the helper will do something on its own. Mm -hmm. So it's that interaction that I, is probably my, my most favorite aspect of this kind of robots. Interesting, yeah. So do you think ego is important for you? Ego. Ego. Oh, <laughs> a very egotistical person would say no. <laughs> it's... I think with anybody, uh, you get a, a certain satisfaction out of, a, yeah, hey, I did that. Uh, but, or hey, you know, I, I'm a fellow of various societies or I'm a member of the National Academy. You know, of course that is very gratifying. But I honestly believe that for me, the real payoff is seeing things I've done get into use. Mm. And seeing 
things that either I or even more important, my, our students have done, have discovered something or have, have figured out how to solve a critical problem. It's the, the discovery and demonstration, I think, of solving important problems in the world that really drives me. And it's always fun to solve the problems you have to solve along the way. So I actually think that is more a driver for me than uh, the ego aspects of of recognition or, or, or those kind of things. Um, and generally, I've, I've noticed that most people who are successful, that is the case. You, you also, I mean, we work with surgeons who have big egos. They have to, to have the confidence to do what they do. So you quickly learn to deal with that. I used to joke that a standard way of measuring, a standard unit for measuring the ego is the microsurgeon. <laughs> but, I, it, and you need a certain level of confidence to pursue something, but, but I think you also do need a, a measure of ability. And, you know, as you get further along in your career, more and more, uh, successful people find really find their rewards in the success of people they've mentored and i, I think that is true for most of us who are fairly senior in, and certainly in our field at least most of the folks i know yeah i have respect for that thank you and let me ask you what is the most important quality you have gained in this journey and you have to mention the most important quality you have gained Probably I've learned that I have to be more patient than um, I was at the beginning, both patient with others uh, and also just simply patient with problems. Uh, uh, I, I still am a very impatient person, more impatient than I should, but I, I, I think probably the most important quality that I, I think I've gained over my career is some greater ability to take a longer view of things. Mm. I can't claim that I'm always successful at that, but I think that is probably something, again, uh, probably comes with the territory of, of being a senior academic uh, or a senior person in industry is... Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing this. Uh, yeah, with us. Yeah. And lastly, what was this advice was given to you, and was the life changing? Advice. I'm not sure I could point to a particular piece of. I tell you what. What probably the the most career changing. Okay. Interaction I had uh, actually sure. was when I was an undergraduate at Johns Hopkins. Uh, I had an opportunity uh, to work uh, for a professor who became my undergraduate mentor. This was uh, Mendel Belmore. And uh, I was implementing uh, Fortran programs, uh, mathematical programming optimization programs, uh, uh, from, among other things, for, for something called the traveling salesman's problem. That, uh, he and his graduate student, John Malone, had developed algorithms for. And I think that experience of research 
uh, mentored research really did help shape my career. It certainly pointed me at Stanford where I went to grad school and, and uh, Professor Belmore clearly wrote, uh, uh, I think, the letter that probably got me accepted there. And uh, I, I mean, as a result, um, I've tried to do the same thing for others. I recognize that undergraduates are often just starting out and if you can get them involved, it, it, it changed my life to be involved with research early on and uh, I think that um, it's important to us, especially in academia, to create those opportunities uh, for students at all levels. Uh, so that for me was and it's interesting that after I came back to Johns Hopkins, uh, Professor Belmore had already left. He had a very, very then successful career uh, consulting, but he, um, I, we got back in touch and uh, are, are now personal friends. And, and so that's rewarding too. Wow, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you have any final words you'd like to share for robotics community? Any final words you guys like to say? Final words. One is I envy you. I think we are finally ideas, many of which were there 40 years ago or more when we were just starting, are now becoming practical. And the community is growing, and, and robotic systems are playing more and more crucial role in our society and will over the next 20 years. And so I really envy people getting into this field now because you, the infrastructure is there to do amazing things. And I, 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 I think, especially with this three-way partnership between people and technology and information to do things in the world that, that can transform our society for the better and help us solve some of the enormous problems that are that our societies around the world face. So I envy you. I'm hoping to stick around long enough to enjoy some of it. But uh, that, yeah. that's probably my parting words. Good luck and I envy you. Yeah, but I think you have a really rich experience, and I think uh, what you said is very inspiring. So, yeah, I think uh, uh, we owe you as well. So, thanks okay. a lot for sharing this experience and thoughts. And, and yeah, okay. it's, really, it's really inspiring. It's such an honor okay. to have you. Thanks a lot. Thank well, you. thank you for, uh, for offering to have me, and I'm very much enjoying uh, the conversation. Thank you. Thank you.